Hello, everybody, and welcome to this latest episode of the Together podcast. I'm Stuart Constable. I'm the head of copy and content at Together. And with me today is John Busby, our chief technology officer. That's correct. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back on the podcast again. Today, John and I are going to cross swords on the subject of digital marketing, if indeed there is such a subject in this almost entirely digital age. I think it's in the habit of marketers to make distinctions, to label things, to find new fads and trends to pursue. And digital marketing has been around for a long time. And I wonder if we ever pause to think, what do we really mean by it? and therefore how best we can use it and where it fits in the marketing mix. That might be nonsense, and John's about to put me straight on this. I, the thing is, I, I think I agree with you on this one, which is, as marketers, we love branding things. Right? That's part of our job. You know, a few years ago, and if I look back at the history that, and the kind of projects we've gone through at, at, at together, I would say digital marketing was a thing. Now, marketing has evolved so much our devices, our mobile phones, our computers, our televisions are now so advanced that I, I just think we should think about it as good marketing, not digital marketing, not non-digital marketing, not guerrilla marketing in other terms. You should just look at different ways that you can engage your audience. That may seem a little bit counterintuitive coming from someone whose entire role depends on the amount of digital work that we do. Um, but But really, if I was to kind of put into words what frustrates me about the term digital marketing is that everyone always thinks that it's online. That when you talk about digital marketing, it's a website or it's an email campaign or you know, or, you know, it can be an ad campaign nowadays as well. You know, and things like events are digital marketing. And quite often, one of the stats that gets thrown around is that certainly in the channel space, in the technology space that we operate in, channel partners are much more confident and willing to do events over digital marketing. I disagree with how that stat gets presented because events can be just as important and just as digital as an email or a website or an app or anything else that you're looking at building. So I think my challenge within, when we talk about digital marketing is that I think we need to, you need to look at it almost affecting everything that you do, not just looking at it as being online. Yes, I think you've touched on something there that I think is one of the, the problems with digital marketing mm-hmm. is that when it started, it was a distinct thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the phrase has hung around, but what it represents now has evolved so much um, that I, either it doesn't represent anything because of what you said in the intro, mm-hmm. everything's marketing now, or it means a different mindset, if you like, a different way of approaching what used to be called the marketing communications mix. Yep. So there's going to be what you might call a digital element to any kind of effective campaign these days. And just because it runs on a device or because it's delivered from the cloud, actually, does that make it digital marketing? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it does necessarily. An ad served onto a screen that looks like an ad that used to sit on a poster site doesn't really matter whether it's digital or not, it's just an ad. And if you bring the disciplines of advertising um, creation, if you like, to that environment, then they work. You don't need to have a special digital skill to create an effective, quotes, digital ad. This is getting very convoluted. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a couple of things there I'd, I'd like to dive in. You've struck something that's, that's, that's harked me back to my university days, which is quite a while ago now, when you mentioned the marketing mix. I'm not going to say I apply it religiously now. So 
let's dive into the marketing mix for a moment. And so, so Stuart, what is your understanding of the marketing mix? And does it, do you know, is that something that we apply in B2B marketing on a day-to-day basis? That's a really unfair question. <laughs> uh, you, you think your university days were a long time ago, you should look back at mine. Well, of course, the original marketing mix when I was uh, a, a, a boy and Pontius was a pilot and cigarettes were 10 for 20, it was four things. It was product price, place and promotion. Mm-hmm. And then there was the marketing communications mix, yep. which brought in advertising, direct mail, public relations, yep. that kind of thing. As I understand it, it's now, whether it's the marketing mix or the marketing communications mix, I'm not sure, but it's now nine things. It was, it was five when I was at university, and I'm trying to remember what the other P was. I still have my copy of, I think it's Solomon 5th edition or something, um, sat on a shelf. That might be an economics textbook, so apologies. Kotler, if, maybe. Um, yeah, Kotler, yeah. I still got Kotler somewhere as well. So I'll have to go back and remember what it is. But I always struggle to wrap my head around it when I would think about digital marketing. Maybe I just don't think, think about this deep enough. But it was something that was very theoretical. It would be, it would be quite interesting to to actually plot the number of P's in the marketing mix over time and see if that correlates with the amount of different tactics and technologies we now see in MarTech and digital marketing because it's it's likely they probably are. So, it, you know, it could, be a, it could be a whole debate in itself seeing how you now apply those in, in, in today's, today's marketing world. But for me, I, I just struggle to make them real. And I think digital marketing now, if I think about it, you need to make everything relevant to the user for it to really have the cut through there are so many different channels that they can that you can be approached by um you know we were in a discussion yesterday with a client talking about things like social selling and so on like you know every time i log into something like linkedin now you're just bombarded with people messaging you there's so many there's almost a new tactic invented probably every every minute or every certainly every hour and i think it's about trying to find the right ways of including that marketing mix of price place promotion to really get cut through Yes, and I think what you've done there is go to my safe place. When you're wallowing around in these terms and wondering which of them makes sense and is relevant to the decision you're trying to make as a a Mm -hmm. B2B marketer, the safe space is the user or the audience. Who who is this person that you're trying to communicate with? Um, And, of course, this is the copywriter in me coming out because that's our job. We sit with a blank piece of paper about to write a letter to somebody, whether it's going to finish up as a website or an ad or a thought leadership paper. Effectively, you're saying to this person, right, stop what you're doing, put everything down, abandon all your plans that you had for the next two hours of the day, and read this stuff that I'm going to tell you. And to do that, you've got to understand what their world looks like. You've got to understand what their priorities are. You've got to understand what they're already thinking about so you don't just dump them something they already know you've got to give something as you said fresh relevant and valuable and so when you're coming up with whatever a digital marketing campaign looks like and maybe that's a question we can talk about in a minute Mm -hmm. it has to start from the from the user the audience how are they going to engage with this stuff where are they going to be so when you for example talk about an event is the event the end outcome of what is effectively a digital campaign there will be digital content being served at the event the event may be recorded and used as digital content yep so there's all that kind of stuff so really put you on the spot yep what would a digital marketing campaign these days look like let's think about the history of how digital marketing has come about and where we are now and maybe give us a bit of context over exactly what a campaign looks like today 
So, you know, full, full disclosure to all of our readers, I'm not reading from a script or from Wikipedia here. I'm going to be doing this very much from memory. So do feel free to, to, to add any comments with, with anything we've missed. But, you know, if I think back to, to my career, when I started in digital marketing, I'm going to, I'm going to affectionately put it about 2001. Um, I think I probably did my first website somewhere in the, in the late 90s. Um, but really, when I built my first website, which was, I'm going to sound really awful here, was actually for a double glazing company. Um, I, it was great marketers. It, it, it worked. You know, we were just building websites, and we were, you know, we were just making sure an email address worked, and that was about as far as a campaign would go. In about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, platforms like AdWords became very important. Things like advertising became more and more and more important. And if you are interested to, to look into this more, you know, a lot of the ad platforms that we have today are actually based off the original stock engine platforms when they were digitized at the end of the end of the 90s and early noughties so actually when you're loading a page now what's what's happening behind the scenes is the same as what would happen when you go and buy um some microsoft shares um it's really quite fascinating seeing how all that works so just to bring us back on topic for a moment in about 2005 i love your concept of fascinating yeah, yeah. in about 2005 <laughs> you know the ad platforms started coming out uh, when i joined together in I'm going to say around 2008, 2009. You know, we were doing, I think I've said this on previous podcasts, like I remember getting invoices for millions, hundreds of thousands of emails a week we were sending. We were, you know, that was our primary method of communicating to to, to users digitally. We were putting landing pages up um, and that would be kind of the, the... the breadth of what we were doing you know in a b2b space things like adwords and and media buying wasn't a thing then it was rapidly starting to add momentum but you know it wasn't something we were actively involved in i'd say about five years ago we were starting to build a lot more complex sites so and you know these are the kind of tools we build today so configurators things that add value to the user as they as they as they come to it and if i look at ourselves now it's infinitely more complex uh i mean those of those of you that are fans of the podcast have probably heard our martech director john breeden speak um but from 2010 to now we're in 2019 the number of martech solutions has grown exponentially and I think if you look at a typical marketing campaign today, the mix of communication methods will be wildly different to what they used to be. An email will really only form a tiny part of that mix. Um, and a landing page you know, will only form a tiny part of that mix. And I think the most important thing for our listeners to, to think about is that's always constantly changing as well. So five, six years ago, we were also doing a lot of gated Facebook pages because that was really popular. Ten years ago, we were building lots of Facebook clones. Nowadays, you know, with, with the some of the data challenges with things like GDPR, you know, Facebook is seen as, as as something that maybe some people don't want to touch. So this is always changing through the regulation. It's always changing through the new channels. It's always changing through the new technology. And it's our job to try and keep up with that. So to come back to your original question, because I've gone off on quite a few tangents <clears throat> there, what was our original question? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, what does a, a digital marketing campaign look like these days? But I think perhaps to help shape the answer and to give our listeners some hope here by running a, a common thread through, that yeah. I think there's two ends to it. There is the end user experience, the audience. What are we trying to say to them and how are we trying to, to reach yeah. them? And I think perhaps the, the defining characteristic in, in the modern era especially is the back end, is the data that we get out of digital marketing. And that, as you say, is what John was talking about yep. extensively in, in, the, in the previous podcast. I think that's the thing that we have now that we didn't have before. Marketers 
good marketers anyway, were always trying to get data, even from above-the-line campaigns that try and do some kind of measurement. Yep. And the direct marketers, of course, were masters of it. Whereas now we've got so many tools at our disposal, perhaps one of the challenges clients face is making sense of just how much data we've got. So perhaps your digital marketing campaign is planned partly on the basis of what do you want back? You don't want too much back. You want stuff back only that's meaningful and that allows you to refine what you're doing and that kind of thing. Yep, yep. And I would say there's two common threads that come out of that. Um, one, which is you know, which is an item that uh, you know we talk about a lot in Martech, is the silo data problem, which is uh, data sitting in these individual pockets. So uh, we often talk about B two B marketers having to access approximately twenty one separate systems. That's be that's a Salesforce stat from about two years ago. Now I wouldn't be surprised if that's now higher. Mm. You know, if you think about twenty one separate systems, each of those is doing its own job, hopefully doing it incredibly well, but each one is tracking its its own data, is trying to build a picture of uh, of the customer that's interacting with so you know have dealing with siloed data and actually dealing with gaps in that data is, is the first challenge the second one that we that we come across quite a lot is and I, I probably every two or three months I will be in a meeting and a client will bring this up is okay so we need to get this message out but we need to not use email and that it's it's surprising, you know, after everything I've just mentioned about how email is now just a small part of, of that, that that we still don't have a way of or a, a, well, where, where am I going to start? We don't have a way of really a, a next best thing that we use. Um, and so what we're really trying to design with a lot of the campaigns that we, that we do today is trying to make the technology as as transparent as possible. Transparent might not be the right word. If I phrase that, do you a different mean in way. terms of user experience? Yes. Yeah. So, so there's probably a, a great quote that I can pull from somewhere here, but essentially, it should be so easy to use they don't even realise it's happening. Yeah. Um, if that if that makes sense. So we almost want the, those communication methods to feel so natural, so part of everyone's day to day that they don't. I'm not going to say you don't realise you're being marketed at. That would be a great a great solution to have but it's there when you need it um and it's not this this push mechanism or outbound marketing mechanism that that you know we've been using for years mm. you could say that could be phrases inbound which is a trend that's been very much popularized by hubspot and um you know it is something that we'd always recommend as part of a marketing campaign but going a step further than that it's about using some of the modern technologies today to market a message to someone when it's relevant to them that I think is, is relevance is such a useful word in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, and that always comes back to data, I think. And that's one of the reasons perhaps you're encountering this question about email is that companies perhaps are still not investing properly in getting their data right. GDPR called a lot of people's bluff yep. and has, I think, brought in a level of professionalism and um, discipline to the marketing process that... Um, we were lacking before. People just accumulated names without really make, trying to make sense of them, whereas now every name is, is visibly a, a, a valuable asset. And I, th- and I think on top of that, sorry to jump in there, Stuart, the, you know, one of the key things I'm seeing a lot of B2B brands not do that is, that is so, so simple is just personalising that email, that newsletter that you're sending out based on the subjects that, are, that, that your user or prospect wants to see. Um, so in today's day, and, and Stuart just mentioned GDPR, They've had to have opted in. They've had to have bought something from you. They've had to have. They've had to have done done something for you to be able to market to them. And I think 
you should be using that information to personalize it so that they're not just receiving a generic email. And I still see so many, so many brands, unfortunately, just sending out a newsletter that has 15 stories in uh, and, and, and getting the feedback back that it's just not relevant to most of their users. Yes, I think that's a challenge. Well, it's not. It's, it's an opportunity, of course. One of the things I wanted to to challenge you on, John, and it's something that we've argued about before, is the user experience yep. and the frequency with which clients say, "I want an amazing digital experience." Yep. What these days is an amazing digital experience? I think it's much more the kind of thing that you're yep. talking about now, which is an invisible digital experience. Yep. That's yep. amazing because it's good for the user and it's good for clients because they get the response and the data back that they want and the interaction that they want. But are we seeing, are we entering a time of digital fatigue? Is there anything left that technology can do that will impress us? (laughs) There's so much I could dig into there. Let's talk about (laughs) user experience first and then let's come back to digital fatigue. So it's a really interesting point. And again, talking about the evolution, just while I've been here, well, in this room, in, in this room, it's yes, changed it's probably changed. We we leave, and everything will be different. It will be holograms beamed into our heads. <laughs> I remember when I first started, there was no concept of the wireframe. There was no concept of what we call information architecture. There was no concept of prototyping. Actually, uh, I can tell you that there was. It was called professional advertising, but <laughs> nobody understood that, and it's still only just creeping in. But. <laughs> David Ogilvy understood that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I but, sound I mean, like one of those fatigued old marketers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I would say for us, you know, it was it was a new... There, you, there was no... You wouldn't see a UX designer uh, in an agency. Like, when we started back in, you know, back in 2005, it was a... It, I would say it was quite a rare, rare role. It was only really in about 2009, 2010 that that, that, that started to gain, gain traction. The other side, the other side of that as well is so user experience has come a long, long way. Um, now we wouldn't we wouldn't consider building even a simple landing page without going to wireframe first. It's cheap for you to build prototypes and test. You know things like performance marketing and A/B testing and all of those elements form part of that campaign mix as well. And it's just as important to get feedback on a user experience before you go into full design. Um, so that's that's really changed over the last few years. Um, coming on to digital fatigue. There's a, I, there's so many places I could start on this, but one thing that really frustrates me at the moment, and I think, is something we have to solve as marketeers, and it's been a, it's been a problem of our, of our own doing, and this may just be a personal frustration for me, is cookie pop-up windows. I just, <laughs> I, like, it's not just. I'm for really you. sorry, our list, listeners, but it's just something that I'm, I've come to your site to read an article. I get why, you know, we have to be open and honest about everything we're doing, which is great. But from a digital perspective, it just starts to put me off doing anything when I've got to click on a big, especially on a mobile. So from a fatigue perspective, I think there are opportunities left for companies to solve some of these challenges. But some of them we've created ourselves. And so I just hate those pop-up windows. I hate them so much. (laughs) And especially, especially running a team of developers, we love to mess around with our computers and ad, use things like ad blockers and so on. I shouldn't be endorsing ad blockers being an agency, obviously. But there is now a growing trend of stopping even viewing the content. So it's just, you know, we need to find better ways where that's not a challenge we have to solve, if that makes sense. Bob Garfield, who used to write a brilliant um, ad crit column in Advertising Age, wrote a book called The Chaos Scenario a long time ago now, in which... He set out the challenge facing 
people like YouTube and Facebook um, who were in their infancy then, which was that they had established a free culture and an expectation that you know they didn't have the Faustian bargain that commercial television had. Everybody who watched commercial television, you knew you were going to be interrupted by the advertising because that was the deal. You couldn't get that television unless the advertising paid for it. But of course, um, online experiences started out with quite high ideals of freedom and it's the people's environment and all that kind of stuff. And now advertising and messages are being overlaid onto these things. It's very, very difficult, I think, for advertisers to get past the resentment that users feel saying, well, this is my space, get out. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in this. It doesn't matter how good the ad is, and this may be a sign of my age, for which I apologise, listeners. Not for my age, I'm very proud of it. But I wear a different hat looking at content online than the hat I wear when I'm watching a football match. I don't like the way that football is interrupted by ads at some of the most critical moments, but I understand why, and I always have. So I accept it. But I'm, if I'm online... I'm just going to filter out anything that I know is not what I'm there for. So if you're going to create an online campaign, you've got to have a really, really good reason for me to look at your ad because I'm resistant mm -hmm. to it because it's an ad. And I'm already talking myself out of believing that because as I think about it, actually in some cases now, you they are part of the furniture. But I do still think there's a different mindset when you're looking at online content to when you're looking, for example, at a newspaper. Part of me wonders if that is because when we watch TV, there's the impression that you've made this thing and I watch it for, you know, essentially free, you know, license fees and such. And in return, I'll watch these advertisements so you continue to do that. When we go onto Facebook or Twitter, the users are generating the content. And I feel like my peers and myself are making what we're here to look at. There's no, you make content and then I'll watch your adverts. It's I make content and then I'll watch your adverts. And I think that that seems like a more sour deal. Uh, I think that's, that's the essence of it. And it's a very good point. And, of course, what advertisers found, and where I'm going with this, sorry, John, I'll let you have a go. No, 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 minute, no, no, but, no, no carry but, on. I think what this says to us as advertisers, and again, I can hear David Ogilvy spinning away, is you've got to get your content right. And you know what, what's happened is we got fat and lazy in the 80s and 90s as, as professional advertisers, and users came along and are producing much better content, much better advertising, much better stories to tell than professional advertisers are, because we got caught up in gimmickry and punnery and... And we all thought we were going to be Don Draper. Meanwhile, users were producing really pertinent, valuable stuff. And I don't want some corporate person stamping into my territory um, and telling me stuff that isn't relevant to me. And in particular, um, for example, forums like Spiceworks do a fantastic job of facilitating debate between technology. I, for us at Together, mm -hmm. the technology audience is really important. And what Spiceworks doesn't allow you to do is go tramping in with marketing messages. Or even if it did, the community won't let you. They'll shoot you down in flames if you start trying to land sales messages. So you have to be much more genuinely creative in how you use those channels to try and interact with your audience. I've got, I've got one question coming out of the comment you both of you just made about television. So would you consider... TV, a digital advertising medium? Of course, these days, yes, I would see it as a digital medium because you can do the back-end tracking now. Yep. Um, it's becoming more and more interactive. The, the, but the, it's really interesting, and I'm glad you made that point, which is it blew me away the other day. This was actually 
probably not the other day, this was a few months ago now, we, we all knew it was coming, that adverts would start becoming personalised with with the newer boxes, you know, where personally at home I have a, a, a very popular British television provider. Other providers are available. Um, and, and what, I, I can't remember which, it was an advert actually for BMW. Um, Other vehicles are available. <laughs> yes. And it, and it, actually, <laughs> it actually personalised the call to action on the screen for me to contact my local dealership. And when that you was say point personalised, did it use your name or just simply know where you were? It, it, knew, it knew where I was, but down to a much more granular level than I would normally expect, to the point where it wasn't, say, it didn't look like it was just regionalised to London or to, to that particular area. South like East. Yeah, it was. And I did actually rewind it, and, the t- and I could find, I believe, the text was added on afterwards. So it was an advert with essentially a call-to-action text the box would add, would add on. And that is the you know that's the future of where that that medium's going. And I mean, it's it, it, we can't talk about television without also mentioning other popular British brands. Um, actually, we will have to mention this one by name, but companies such as John Lewis, where most of their advertising views are now just virally on you you know on on YouTube. Yeah. So I feel that it's just as important as a digital means as as, as it ever has been. But you see, I think one of the things you mentioned there, the personalisation, it didn't, and and I think this is the other thing. Personalization used to be, well, put your name on it. And, you know, you'll have your name spelt wrong and, and standing above the rest of the text. This isn't a Starbucks. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is about <laughs> going back to that word again, relevant, fresh, relevant value yep. content. And just an anecdote, because it, it always fascinates me. And, it, you know, I've had this debate since 1977 when I first started in the industry. We've been able to do this for that long. We've just not, except within the direct marketing profession, and it's a shame, our writer Mark Berry's not here because he would be climbing the walls now saying, we can do this. But one of my favourite brands um, and, and other systems are available is Bose. Their sound systems are superb and the way they do their direct marketing is always, always good or at least it always used to be. And, uh, and you know, you read certain journals, you, you know, you're members of certain organisations and I used to get at least twice a month in whatever communication or whatever magazine I picked up out would fall the flyer or stuffer from Bose with the picture of the wave station on it and I'd think I really want one of those and then you know I had one and it would do that reinforcement thing of saying hey you've got the best thing it's just amazing but before I actually got one one of the ways they hooked into me and got me was not only were they targeting me correctly through the channels they were using the photograph of the system on the front of the leaflet had a picture of, in which there were four CDs, and I had three of them. And it, it, I felt invaded, you know, and I felt a cliche. How do you know? And how am I so predictable? But at the same time, I thought that's cool. Were they they, they that, know their audience. Was this the, because there were only four CDs available in the world at this point? No, John. It was because they had a really good understanding of the demographic and taste <laughs> and the quality. Yep. Of the, you know, I'd like to point out these were very, very sophisticated pieces of music that were being advertised, including Keith Jarrett's Cologne <laughs> I think we breezed past something that was I thought was really interesting. Um, you pointed out, John, that most of John Lewis's advertisements come from viral sharing. Yep. So we have this contradiction where, on the one hand, people are getting frustrated by these cookies coming at us, and, oh, I don't want this advertisement, oh, this advertisement by the screen, I'll just ignore them. On the other hand, people will not only seek out 
and anticipate the John Lewis advert, and the same with Sainsbury's, that, oh, it's going to be coming soon, guys, but then they will then share that and force it on their friends and do the distribution for you. They'll put that on their Facebook. There'll be a hashtag, and everyone will tweet about that. I think it comes down to the inbound versus outbound type discussion, which is you need to be creating something inherently valuable for your users to feel they want to interact with it. Mm. I think, you know, it might be a little bit of red herring just because they invest so much in, in that content, but... Really, at the, at the crux of it, you're exactly right. It's about making something valuable that is worth sharing. Um, but, it's, it's, I mean, yes, they do invest so much, but perhaps that's because they understand the digital medium. Yep. They understand that sharing and that sense of community that digital has facilitated is really critical and that if you can start to build the kind of expectation and, and sense of belonging that Harry's talking about that, that online communities create, then... You know, when you launch your new message into that environment, it's an event. Let me let me take this in a, a slightly different tangent. And those of you that are classically trained in marketing, I'm going <laughs> to refer to something here, try and refer to something and probably do an awful job of it. There used to be a big discussion about whether we do things to advertising or whether advertising does things to us. Yes. I've forgotten the seminal paper. I've... Well, the Hidden Persuaders of Vance Packard and all of that, that was the 50s book. Yeah. Well, there might have been a more recent paper. But, the, but the, you know, it's there, there was a... Definitely a, a a big debate over whether we do things to advertising. Does advertising manipulate us, or does advertising manipulate us? Yeah. The the example I love to use here is perfume adverts. I just don't get them, so I think we do things to advertising because it goes in my head and it nothing happens in my head to want to buy anything there. Um, <laughs> I've noticed that it's a small room. Yeah, thanks. Um, the I was going to make that comment myself, but I didn't. But but I'm going to bring it on to. It's something that we've come across quite a lot now. We're doing a lot more with voice. There's a great uh, picture that gets used to demonstrate the evolution towards mobile. So if you, I'm, I'm going to try and draw this picture in, in everyone's minds as you're, as you're listening to me. But if you remember that classic picture of us going from a monkey to a, to a human being. Oh, yes, um, and, the, you know, if you then see that continuing on from a human being to someone sat at a desk... Um, and then to someone looking at their mobile. You know, we've gone into this evolution of looking at screens. And the way that it's often getting phrased now is that technology has been doing things to us. You know, we are very much ruled by the technology that's around us. But one of the interesting things that's happening with voice, and specifically here is voice assistance, is this is the first time where we're able to do things to technology. Now, okay, maybe that's a bit of a, a an overreaching statement, but, but when we're using our phone, when we're using an app on our phone, we're very much at the whim of it sending us push notifications, of it being organised how it wants to be organised. Now, all of a sudden, we have the power back. So we're, we are the ones that we can phrase anything in the way we want to phrase it, and it has to understand us and not the other way around. When you um, say it has to, you mean that the people developing the technology are, are getting that user experience information back and they're having to adapt yep. what they do. And the te- but the te- is, at the core of it is the technology itself the is having to adapt. To um, well, no, it's, it's, it, it, they have to be designed that way. Um, so it's it's a really interesting thought when you when you when you go through that evolution and the, certainly the way it's been put forward by a lot of voice assistant providers. Um, we won't mention any any by name, but I'm sure it's fairly obvious um, who the main players are in this market. It, 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 it's being seen as we're now looking up 
you know, now we don't have a screen in front of our faces. It's we're back in control of that conversation, um, if you if you pardon the pun. So I think bringing this back to digital marketing, how can you put the user in control of your message? And how can you, you know, if I, if I continue down the, the voice element for a moment, one of the key things that they talk about as um, as a way of ensuring that you're successful in those mediums is the frequency of interaction. So if you have to interact with something more frequently, you're much more likely to remember it. So what can you be doing to increase the frequency of your interactions, be it you pushing messages to them, but ultimately how they can interact with you directly via inbound means? That's probably quite a powerful thought just to just to leave out there, but it's, yeah. It's possibly a, a thought on which we can draw this conclusion Uh, that was a lot of fun i hope you dear listener had as much fun with it as we did and as john said at the beginning if you didn't or if you did let us know and uh, thank you once again